You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We shouldn't, as Democrats, be empowering the Republicans. President Trump was sent here to smash conventional norms. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. The epicenter of the coronavirus remains in the United States. This as more than 50,000 deaths alone in the country continues to give pause to policymakers all across the country on how to reopen the country. We have an exclusive interview with someone in the administration who is leading the charge for preparedness and response, Dr. Robert Cadlick at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. We're also going to check in with Tim Kelly. He's an election strategist and owner of Kelly Strategy, and Congressman Andy Barr will join us. A lot to get through as we await for President Trump's daily coronavirus task force briefing, which you can check right here, which you can listen to right here on Bloomberg 99.1 FM. There's been so much conversation on this program and also inside of the Beltway and outside of it about the strategic national uh, stockpile and the the stockpile for emergencies that the country has and how that's divided up to the states. Because you have to remember, folks, uh, that the strategic national stockpile is designed for there to be, should there be a worst case scenario for states uh, to, to utilize as a backup. And that's why I'm so incredibly grateful for Dr. Robert Cadleck to join us on this program in his first interview. He is the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, or ASPR, as it's known. He is someone who has 26 years of military experience. Uh, he uh, has uh, he's worked in Congress. He's worked in the Bush administration. Uh, prior to that, he's just uh, you know and like and and was a physician in the United States Air Force before retiring from the Air Force as a colonel. So, Dr. Cadlick, uh, thank you so much for for agreeing to come on this program. And I'd like to just start very broad, which is tell us about the difference between the national strate- or the strategic national stockpile and what the states are doing to get their equipment and emergency response equipment. Sure, Kevin. What a pleasure to be on today, and thank you so much for letting me be on here and talking to your uh, to your listeners and uh, and just saying. Uh, Howdy did all, but here's the critical thing. The SNS, as we call it, is really to be a supplement to the states and really to provide acute needs when they really have run out of their own stuff. Now, a pandemic is, a, is kind of a unique scenario. 
but even there, we really do owe our, ourselves a, a, the favor that everybody has to be prepared, and that's not only individually, but states and healthcare systems in the states. And so what we have is a, a, a quantity of material that we basically parse up uh, based on pro rata, who, how many people live in a state, to basically divide what we have so we can give it fairly to everybody. And what we do is we provide it when they need it. And we, we really want to make sure that they don't hoard it. That has been a problem that's been described out there. But I think the key thing here is we're the 911, the last stop, not the first stop shopping for states and uh, entities that need this kind of stuff. We have some very unique uh, uh, countermeasures, vaccines against smallpox. We do have things like the N95 masks. But really the thing here is for the things that are common everyday use items, surgical masks, gloves, gowns, that kind of stuff, it's really a shared uh, shared opera responsibility. So I think this is fascinating because obviously in, in, in this uh, uh, time where states are trying to make sure that their hospitals have all of the equipment that they need and the strategic national stockpile, which we've all learned about uh, in the media as well as uh, folks listening, we've all learned about this recently. You guys have already deployed more than $100 million in supplies across the country, N95 respirators, surgical face masks, face shields, gloves, gowns, and other critical medical supplies and equipment but how do you once you deploy that sir it's up to you to make sure that that strategic national stockpile is replenished so how have you been uh, uh navigating that balancing act so to speak lord forbid there be another you know uh, national emergency we got to make sure that the, the reserve is replenished sure and and first of all we're doing that we were doing that back in january when the outbreak happened in china and we recognized that we could use a lot of stuff. So we were buying everything that we could domestically and realizing that the global market for personal protective equipment is high. And so we're out buying uh, from not only domestic manufacturers, we've been working with different companies in the United States to expand domestic manufacturing. That's not only more stuff, but more jobs and wages for Americans making this stuff. But also we've been looking for foreign sources, and that has included places in Asia like China. And those supply chains did get disrupted, but they're reestablished now. So we're literally flying things, loads of tons of everything you just mentioned, N95 masks, uh, gloves, gowns, anything we need, Tyvek suits, we're bringing from all sources around the country and the world to basically meet the needs of our healthcare industry and our critical first responders. Dr. Robert Cadlick's on the line. He's the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response in the government. He has more than 20 years as a career officer and physician in the United States Air Force before he retired as a colonel. Uh, Dr. Cadlick, as you look in, in, into the future, and you mentioned some of this, you previewed some of it, but I want to take it into when, you, when Lord willing, there's that vaccine. You're going to be the point person or one of the point people in terms of disseminating that vaccine across the country. So how are you, how is your team preparing for once there is a vaccine available to make sure that anyone who wants it can get it? So first of all, we've been working hard on the vaccine for this particular coronavirus since January, literally taking sequences from the genetic information that we've received, both from China and our own experiences with the samples that we've recovered and basically converting that into not only diagnostics, but potential therapeutics and vaccines. And significantly, we have a number of candidates. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. We have about a top five or 10 that they were pursuing. We're going to be doing animal testing on those right away. Some of it's already started in phase one safety testing in humans. 
So the intent is when we basically find something that works and that we know is safe, we're going to make it like, like nobody's business. And with that, basically, the quantities for enough for every American, 300 million. And our goal is to do that by the end of this year. Wow. Now, that's not an easy proposition. That's a, that's a tall order. But the thing is, is we're working with the pharmaceutical companies, the big ones, the small ones, anyone in between who has capacity means to do that. Your question's a critical one. Who gets the vaccine when they get the vaccine? Now, clearly, there is a kind of a unique circumstance here with this virus. First, we know that there are people who are extremely vulnerable. We would think that they would be towards the front of the line. And we also know our healthcare workers and critical first responders would be some of the first people to get this vaccine so they can stay healthy and take care of people who need help or who are sick with this particular virus. I apologize. So that's how kind of it. I apologize that this is a simple question, but when you've got to make millions, hundreds of millions of vaccines, where are these? Where are they even made? Obviously, the private sector is going to have a role here, but the military is going to have a. Uh, I would assume would have a role here as well. So, uh, how how do you how Great do you question. ramp this up? So, first of all, the private sector has the majority of the capacity to do this. There are big manufacturers around the country, and we've already been in conversations with the different companies like Janssen, like Johnson and Johnson, like Merck like Pfizer, that have capacity. There are other people that they're contract manufacturing organizations that have capacity they can make things. And then we have these things called CIADMs, the Centers for Innovation and Advanced Development and Manufacturing. These are entities that we have prearranged agreements. They've been uh, created really around pandemic influenza, but we have one up in Rockville with Emergent Biosolutions. Department of Defense has one in Florida called Ology, and those represent capacities and capabilities that the government has access to that we can basically use. Dr. So we'll Robert, use everything and anything to make sure we can get a vaccine to the American people. Dr. Robert Cadlick's on the line. He's the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Dr. Cadlick, what are some of the challenges that your team is facing, and what do you need in order to better execute your job? Well, certainly we've got a generous contributions from Congress, and quite frankly, I think the biggest thing that we would benefit from is bit of time, you know, more time is always better. But I think our greatest challenges right now is that uh, we think that President Trump has given us time by instituting travel restrictions, basically having people stay at home, and that's buying us critical time to make sure that we can basically do the things that we have to do to save, you know, make, keep the American people safe. And that is getting more personal protective equipment for healthcare workers, give us more time to develop uh, therapeutics and vaccines. And, and with that, uh, we're, we're working hard every day. We meet with the vice president every day and the team from, uh, from all the departments and agencies that have a role in here, Department of Defense, obviously Health and Human Services, VA, uh, Treasury even. And we just basically do all those things, again, with the simple focus. How do we keep the American people safe and how can we basically develop a vaccine so that we can eliminate this risk, get back people back to work, and back to the American way of life. You're an optimist, Dr. Cadlick. You know, it's refreshing. You know, I've been interviewing folks for months on this, and I talk to you, and I feel optimistic. And, you know, and, and I guess my final question to you, sir, and here's someone, by the way, for those of you who don't know, he's previously served as the staff director to Senator Richard Burr's subcommittee on bioterrorism and public health in the 109th Congress. He also was at the White House in 2002, post-9-11 to 2005, as the director for biodefense on the Homeland Security Council. Uh, and, and he's, as I mentioned, has, has previously worked on the Senate uh, Select Committee on Intelligence as the Deputy uh, Staff Director. So 
I guess the, the last question that I have for you, sir, is can you, can you ensure that once these vaccine, once we have a vaccine, that anyone who needs one is going to be able to get it and that we have the infrastructure in our country, that there is a plan that is ready to be executed for a mass vaccination once we have it? Well, I think the key thing is we do that pretty much every year with seasonal influenza. We make available for every American uh, who wants a vaccine against influenza to get one. And so we would use a lot of those same mechanisms to do that. We could imagine that you could get them at, uh, at your local pharmacy, at your local grocery store, at your box retailer. That's the kind of way we would do this to make sure that where people shop, where they, where they go to get their medicines, that they can get their vaccination and be that's what we're that's what we're anticipating and, and again it's it's not an easy work we're working 24/7 we've been working 95 days straight since January on this this challenge and we'll continue working together to make sure that not only we keep America safe and strong uh, but we you know again reopen America get you back to work and school which is vital, again, to our way of life. So crucial, so crucial. All right, Dr. Robert Cadlick, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, ASPR, at the U.S. Department uh, at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hey, come back and talk to me soon, okay, Dr. Cadlick? Kevin, my pleasure. Be well and stay well. You too. Thank you, sir. And, uh, you know, there you have it, folks. I mean, the administration planning, and not just the political types, but the, you know, people like Dr. Cadlick planning to execute uh, vaccinations as it relates to once we get one. And, and that plan you heard from Dr. Cadlick uh, right there, uh, they're going to be following the uh, protocols for the for influenza that are already in place. But beyond that, what I was really interested in, and I was talking to some sources close to him earlier today, is this dynamic of the of the strategic national stockpile and how states are having to rely on that stockpile. But states should also be looking to get their own supplies where they can, and the backup is the national uh, stockpile. And so replenishing that is so crucial. Dr. Cadlick is someone who has been there since you know, was brought in post 9-11 back in those days. We all remember the anthrax days and whatnot to develop and execute that plan. So it was, a, it was you know, for him to call in, we're, we're grateful for his insights. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Joining us now on the telephone line to talk the politics of this, first time, another first timer, we're having a bunch of first timers on the show today, is Tim Kelly. Tim is a, uh, I want to make sure I get his title right, Uh, uh, Tim Kelly is an election strategist and he's the owner of Kelly Strategy. And I want to talk Pennsylvania politics for a minute. Tim, how are you, buddy? Wonderful, Kevin. Thanks very much for having me. Of course, anytime. You know, I was, you know, I grew up outside of Philly and Delco, as I as I mentioned frequently. But you know, I was struck by this because in Harrisburg, there were protesters. There were protesters, and they want to get back to work, and they're protesting against Governor Wolf, and they're protesting against the shelter in place. You're someone who knows all the ins and outs of Pennsylvania politics, and you have your finger on the pulse of uh, (laughs) of politics here. What can you tell us about these protesters who are protesting against? And we've seen this in New York, by the way. It's not just in PA. 
Absolutely. You give me too, far too much credit, Kevin. Um, I am here in Philadelphia. Um, you know, there's a story that keeps playing over and over in my head uh, recently that my old boss, uh, the brilliant Arthur Finkelstein, uh, used to tell clients, he'd say, politics is a chess game. You make a move, your opponent makes a move, then the hand of God comes down and sweeps the whole board off the table. That's really how I'm feeling most days. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think I'm not the only one here in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, here in Philadelphia, we've been in lockdown uh, going on five weeks now. <clears throat> Our state-owned liquor and wine stores have been closed for nearly as long. Uh, armed, anti-lockdown, private citizen militias uh, rallied on the Capitol steps in Harrisburg earlier this week. Uh, the day before yesterday, after two weeks of mostly silence, you know, Governor Wolf extended our lockdown uh, for at least another two weeks. You know, to his credit, uh, he does have some semblance of a plan to begin reopening if certain conditions present themselves. But uh, things are feeling, uh, I'd say, fairly tense here in Pennsylvania. Um, Pennsylvania, please. <laughs> um, forgive me for uh, my horrible. Dad it's okay. Fun. It's uh, okay. You know, it's Friday. A Friday funny is always appreciated. You know, here we in, can, in uh, we we can forgive an awful pun on a Friday. <laughs> here in Washington D.C., there's been this fascinating dynamic that has emerged. I know you've been following this, Tim Kelly, election strategist. There's been this fascinating dynamic that's emerged between Republican Governor Larry Hogan and President Trump, and Governor Hogan really becoming a centrist of sorts Republican in this. Uh, Occupying the lane of some previous centrists who have not been afraid to publicly spar with President Trump. From your perspective, what are the political advantages and disadvantages of what Governor Hogan's been doing? Well, you know, generally speaking, I think across the board, blame is being cast at really any governor who's not understanding crisis communications 101, right? Build trust with the public, be open and be honest. You know, cloak and dagger governing strategy is not putting people at ease. And whether you're in the president's lane or outside of the president's lane, you know, being being quiet, you know, not stepping up, not taking care of business, at least as perceived by the people in your home state is a big problem. Um, you know, I know that, you know, the Larry Hogan's, uh, the governor DeWine's in Ohio, the governor Cuomo's in New York, they're examples of, you know, openness and clear communication. Um, you know, people like Governor Wolf here in PA and others who are on the opposite side of that transparency spectrum, I think, are running into a lot of problems. As you look at some of the economic data, and this is something that I know that you track and you have studies on this and polls on this as well. As you look at some and you crunch the numbers on this, Tim, what what are you noticing at least the mood of the electorate is uh, as it relates as it relates to this? Absolutely. You know, people are nervous, uh, without a doubt. And, you know, how this plays out is, you know, to be determined. Um, I really, you know, I can't begin to tell you if, you know, for example, you know, the new, the new stimulus funding is good or bad, more than enough, not enough. If sending more out the door next week or next month is the right thing to do. Um, you know, what I can tell you is that small business owners want to get back to work. Everyone knows that. People want to know that it's not only safe to go out and patronize businesses, but that businesses are taking the steps necessary to keep customers safe. I can tell you that elected officials uh, that I know uh, on both sides of the aisle want to do uh, what's right, and they want to do what they can to, you know, help their constituents through this crisis. 
you know, I'm personally, and I don't think anyone cares how I feel personally, but right now I, I'm not. I care, Tim. Quick. Hey, Tim. Hey, Tim. <laughs> Sound on cares, buddy. Go ahead. You are. You are the best in the business, my friend. Um, you know, I, I'm not quick to jump behind, uh, you know, Senator McConnell today uh, and say that no new packages, you know, should be passed until all lawmakers have returned from recess. I'm not quick to agree that, you know, the senators wait and see how things are working since we just added $500 billion to the national debt is the right way to go. I'm not a, you know, I'm also, I'm not a policy wonk. I'm not an economics um, professional. But politically speaking, um, it doesn't seem to be making a whole lot of sense to be uh, withholding and um, really, you know, saying no at this point when it comes to doing the right thing. We've got a minute left, so you got to keep this quick for me. But uh, Jason Greenblatt writing in the Jerusalem Post yesterday, an incredibly important piece. Jason Greenblatt's been on the program before. Of course, he was one of the advisors at the State Department uh, for President Trump's Middle East peace plan. Uh, Israelis and Palestinians work together against the coronavirus. The pandemic, he writes, reminds Palestinians and Israelis how intertwined their fate is. Remarkable to see, uh, Tim, I'm paraphrasing now, the Israelis and Palestinians working together on this. Very powerful. Very powerful. Incredible. And hopefully, would you hope that, that, that this could lay the groundwork for the future? No? That would be one of the best case uh, scenarios to come out of. Uh, All right, Tim Kelly, come back on anytime you want. Tim Kelly calling in from Pennsylvania. Much more politics in the DMV. Up next, I'm Kevin Cerilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cerilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cerilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. President Trump's going to deliver his daily coronavirus task force briefing uh Daily Coronavirus Task Force briefing uh, at, 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 in the, this upcoming hour, and you can listen to that right here on Bloomberg 99.1. Now all of the talk is going to turn to the first week of May about the next round of economic stimulus now that they finally have replenished that Small Business Administration program. Joining us on the line is someone who is wrapped up in all of this, and that's Congressman Andy Barr. He's a Republican. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. What are you going to be looking out for for the next round of economic stimulus spending? Well, Kevin, thanks for having me. And, of course, uh, yesterday the Congress passed legislation to replenish that very popular Paycheck Protection Program, which literally has saved millions of small businesses from closing their doors and kept uh, even more workers on the payroll. And it was so popular that uh, the Small Business Administration, through the hard work of many of our community lenders, pushed out about $350 billion dollars. Uh, the same amount of loans that uh, um, normally would take 14 years uh, to push out the door in only 14 days. And it, it was depleted. It, it unfortunately took a week for uh, Congress to uh, replenish those funds. But uh, by Monday, uh, many small businesses in Kentucky who have been waiting for, for that lifeline will be getting their forgivable loan. Congressman, uh, I think. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to follow up. I was going to follow up and ask you, how do you make sure that it's actually the mom and pop shops on Main Street that are getting these loans and not, you know, big businesses trying to make a, a make out like a bandit uh, in order to, to steal this cash? 
Well, first of all, the statute limits the eligibility uh, in general to businesses with less than 500 employees. The maximum amount of the loan is $10 million or two and a half times payroll. So there are some just statutory limitations on the program. But beyond that, the Treasury Department, um, in consultation with the Small Business Administration, have issued some new guidance on this. And uh, there were some stories of some companies that um, probably were not in distress and were not intended to be beneficiaries who took advantage of uh, the first wave of this program. Uh, you've heard some of those uh, companies like Shake Shack uh, and Ruth Chris return that, those funds. And that's, that's good because uh, we need those funds, those limited scarce resources reserved for the mom and pops, those truly in distress. And we need to keep uh, those uh, individual uh, workers with those uh, businesses uh, on the payroll. And, and the whole point of this program, as we designed it in the Congress, was to uh, precisely do that, keep workers connected to their employers during this shutdown of the economy so that when we do safely reopen the economy, when we get, do get on the other end of this curve and people can go back to restaurants, go back to bars, go back to uh, hair salons and barber shops, that they can do so uh, safely and that the workers will be there to actually serve customers. If, Car- if everybody were to go to the unemployment uh, line, uh, it would be very difficult to restart this economy quickly. Congressman Andy Barr's on the line. He's a Republican uh, from Kentucky. And I, I was struck by this. I caught you on Fox News uh, yesterday, and you were – You've been really out front on the on the issue of investigating China. I have so many questions about this, but first and foremost, how how do you think the investigation should go? Who should lead it? Should it be the State Department? Should there be hearings on this in Congress? Should it be a mixture of both? Give us a preview once we finally flatten the curve here and reopen the economy about how this is going to change the U.S. and China's relationship. Well, I think it's going to change it, uh, uh, obviously, because uh, we're learning about more and more about the origins. Uh, the executive branch is investigating the origins of China's uh, handling and mishandling of this. The intelligence community, the Defense Department, the State Department, uh, you've heard Secretary Pompeo, they are investigating the origins. And the American people deserve answers. There's over 50,000 Americans who have lost their lives as a result of this. Um, uh, we've borrowed $3 trillion in, in growing to the national debt, uh, added that to the national debt. Uh, obviously, the economic uh, uh, chaos that's resulted and, and the upheaval that has resulted is significant. So it's been a huge cost to uh, the American way of life, and the American people deserve uh, to, to have answers and, if possible, be reimbursed for some of the costs uh, that we have incurred. And so look, my view is that uh, certainly it's appropriate for the executive branch and these intelligence agencies to be investigating but so should the Congress. So we are the elected representatives of the American people. The American people deserve to have answers. And uh, the more you look at China's conduct and the Chinese Communist Party's conduct um, in December, uh, when the first outbreak occurred, uh, and the more you look at the cover-up in January, the more you realize that there was some real malign conduct. We don't know all the details. We shouldn't jump to any conclusions. But certainly we should investigate it so that we can hold China accountable.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.